Revelation chapter 1, let's begin in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we are very aware of how ill-equipped we are in ourselves to approach your word. But we're so thankful that you give us your Holy Spirit to be able to discern spiritual with spiritual, to be able to sift through these things and be able to understand because we have the author in us. We have your spirit. We pray that you'd be our teacher this morning. We pray that we would have a supernatural encounter with you through your word, by your spirit. We pray that you'd bring application to these verses as only you can. We're so grateful that your heart behind this book has been to help us understand it. And we pray that that would continue. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the challenges with studying the book of Revelation, as I'm finding, this is the first time I've taught through this book, first time I've been taught through any of these books, <laughs> but uh, as we study the book of Revelation, um, we get to be overwhelmed in so many ways related to the content. It's just so mind-blowing just to understand that God is actually letting us read a book about future events, for one, and there'll be times, as I've mentioned in the past, where we'll, I'll say, this, these verses right here, we're there. We're looking in the future at ourselves. It's the only book that we're, we can study where the events haven't happened yet. It's amazing. But as we begin to see last week, the, just the word revelation itself is, is revealing something very specific. By the way, there's one revelation. It's not revelations. It's revelation. And the word means to unveil, like you would unveil a statue. If you've sculpted a, sca- a statue and you want to reveal it to the world, you pull, the, pull away the, the, the sheet or whatever, and it, they, they don't see anything until they see everything. And it gets completely revealed. That's God's heart behind this book. It's very important when we, under- when we study a book of the Bible we, or the, any verses that we're understanding God's heart behind the verses. That unlocks almost everything that's important related to a passage is God's heart. That's one of the things that I try so hard to communicate is God's heart behind the verses. I believe that's one of the reasons why he gives teachers a portion of his big heart so that they can communicate that as they teach the word of God. God's heart is that we understand this book. As to the contrary of what people sometimes say, it's not a a pointless endeavor. It's not a hopeless endeavor endeavor. As I mentioned, the book of Revelation looks like a puzzle. When you start a puzzle, you start with the edges first. You start with the border. The book of Revelation is the border to the revelation of Christ, and the pieces are found in the Old Testament. 
So when you understand that, then you get to see the full picture. And so it's not supremely, as we've seen, it's not supremely a book about judgment and the end of the world. That's what we think, right? When we think about the, the, the book of Revelation, we think it's supremely about the end of the world and, and so forth. It's not supremely about that. It's not, a revela- it's not the revelation of the end of the world. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Christ himself, who he is, of the fact that he is coming, of the fact that he will judge this world. But more than that, what he did to secure a relationship with mankind. That is the focal point of the revelation of Jesus Christ. More than any other title that that he's been given in this book, and there is 30 of the titles, and we're going to read through them today, or I'm going to read them to you today. 30 titles where he's designated as something in this book. More than any of those 30 titles, the one that it's emphasized the most and repeated the most is the words, the Lamb. Over 28 or 28 times, he's referred to as the Lamb more than any other title. Why is that? It's because that is why he came. He came to die. He came to be the Lamb of God. He's, judge, he's going to judge this world because they rejected his sacrifice. Everything is based upon that fact, why he came. And that is why there is so much worship in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a worship book. It's not a, it's, I mean, in part, it's many other things too, but it's in part a worship book. We get to see how heaven worships. We'll get to see pictures of us worshiping. You want to see how you're going to worship in heaven? We're going to see it. Are you going to be part of every tongue, tribe, nation, standing before the throne, worshiping him? Many of the songs that we sing, holy, 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 we're going to see ourselves in the future sing those things. How cool is that? That's amazing. Am am I getting excited a little bit? Yeah, I'm getting excited. This is awesome. This is an amazing book. We also saw last week the chain of custody of this revelation in verse 1. We saw this, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to to his servant John. So it's going to go from the father to the son, to his angel, to John, and then in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see to the senior pastor of the church, and then to the people. That's the chain of custody. Changes hands five times, which is amazing. Lastly, we saw the outline of the book uh, that God has provided for us. We jumped ahead a little bit. We can do that. There's no rules. We can jump ahead anytime we want. Look at verse 19 in chapter 1 again. Look down at verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. What a neat little outline. That's what it is. He said, write the things that you have seen. All the things in chapter 1. He's going to see the Lord Jesus. (laughs) Wow, imagine that. He's going to see the Lord Jesus. Now, John was very familiar with the Lord Jesus. He spent years with him. He didn't have the same reaction. He had a reaction that's quite different than what he had when he was with the Lord Jesus on this earth he saw some things and so he says i want you to write those things down but then he said the things which are and those are represented in chapters two and three the things that were going on at that time in the churches and so forth and jesus's letters to those churches but then he says and the things which will take place after this that's from chapter four on and and the church is removed and and there's a lot of things going on uh, on this earth but also in heaven that we get to see So he provides a neat little 
outline. As I mentioned last week, when you, have, when you understand that the puzzle pieces come from the Old Testament and that Revelation is the border of the puzzle, and you look at this outline in, in verse 19, it's crystal clear in addition to the, the, the principles that I laid out of properly interpreting prophecy. And if you didn't get that, by the way, you can get it on our website uh, this week. There'll be both teachings uh, that we've done so far, and I go over five rules for how to properly interpret prophecy, because I'll be referring to them as we go through the book, and you'll understand why I'm getting what I'm getting. Now, notice in verse 4, John begins his proper introduction. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John identifies himself as the author, and then he says, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he's going to list those seven churches in verse 11, but also Jesus writes letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But he says in Asia, which don't think China or anything like, think of, it's really Asia Minor. Think of Turkey, the churches that were in that area there. And then he says these seven churches. Now last week we looked at the significance of the number seven there. 54 times in the book of Revelation, the number seven is listed. So we had to go back to Genesis chapter 2 to see the first time, because there's a biblical interpretation principle of the, the law of first mention, where the first time something's mentioned in Scripture, that's the best definition of it and, and the significance of it. So we went back to Genesis chapter 2 when God sanctified the Sabbath, the seventh day. He completed his work, he fulfilled his work, so he rested on the seventh day. Day And that principle carries through all through the scriptures. And because Revelation is the culmination or fulfillment of earth's history, so to speak, then that's why we see the number seven so many times. He greets them with saying, grace to you and peace from him. And that's important. We've seen the different writers like Paul and Peter and John and so forth in the past write in this way. And it's a very common greeting You've heard this many, many times, most of you, but I'm going to say it again because every time God mentions something, it's for a reason. All scripture is given by inspiration, all, every verse. So when it says grace and peace, the common greeting of that day for the Greeks was uh, irenes, which is peace, or or charis rather, meaning grace, and then the Jews would say shalom. And so he combined those greetings together, but it's, it's always in that order. It's always grace before peace, because you can never experience the peace of God until you first experience the grace of God. The world is trying to get peace out there. They're trying to get their own peace with God on their own terms, and God does not uh, work that way. You have to go his way. You have to receive his grace first, and receive Christ and be born again. Then you get to receive his peace that surpasses all understanding. Now he gives a title here. He says, who is and who was and who is to come. And I believe this is a reference to the Father, even though he refers to himself, Jesus does later on. I believe right here it's referring to the Father. And he's going to, I don't know if you've seen, if you've read through verses four and five before, if you've ever noticed the Trinity there. But there is the Trinity. So you have the Father who is and who was and who is to come the seven spirits of God, and you have Jesus Christ in verse 5. So all of those designations constitute the Trinity there. So we have the Father listed, who is and who was and who is to come. And that may seem odd because we don't think of the Father coming. And it's not really talking about that way, like it's referring to Jesus when he's going to come. It's it's not talking really about um, chronology of time. 
It's really saying the opposite, that, that the Father is outside of time. And you remember when Moses was being commissioned, when the Lord Jesus in a Christophany, in a, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, speaking from the burning bush and so forth, and, and Moses, you know, who do I say is sending me? He's trying to get out of that calling, you know, and uh, he says, I am that I am is called. I mean, it's, it's the eternal one, the existing one. He's outside of time. But then he also mentions the seven spirits of God. Now, that could be kind of confusing. You know, I didn't know there were seven Holy Spirits. So there's not. There's not seven Holy Spirits. Again, that's why we took the time to go through the number seven. Okay? The number seven means fullness or completion. This is referring to the fullness of the Spirit. Now, later we're going to be, I think it's chapter 4, verse 5. We're going to, it's going to talk about something else related to this, but it's talking about the fullness of the Spirit or the complete or all of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an example where the Old Testament will provide the pieces to the puzzle, which will help us. And, and this is the fourth rule that I went over that related to interpreting prophecy correctly, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. So we have to go to the Old Testament to kind of understand, because John is working off of a knowledge that these recipients were very familiar with the Old Testament. That's why he gives all the symbolism, because they would be very familiar with that symbolism in the Old Testament. Zechariah saw a vision of a lampstand with seven pipes, a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the main puzzle piece, I believe, is in Isaiah chapter 11. I want us to hold our place in Revelation and turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. If you need to use your table of contents in your Bible, feel free to do that. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. The difference between a major and a minor prophet is not importance. It's the length of the book. Isaiah is a very long book. <laughs> There's a lot of content, so he's one of the major prophets. So because it's a long book, you should be able to find it a little bit easier. Isaiah chapter 11, let's begin in verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And then we want to focus on verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So let's count there. The spirit of the Lord, that's one. The spirit of wisdom, that's two. The spirit of understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel, four. The spirit of might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six. And the, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven. Now this is very well known to the Jews. That this reference here in Isaiah was referencing the, the fullness of describing the seven man, sevenfold ministry of the spirit. And of course, because God's eternal, or uh, infinite rather, there's no limit to his, of course, his attributes and his ministry and so forth, but he emphasizes seven here. And this is obviously a reference to uh, the fullness of the Spirit resting upon whom? Who's he speaking about in verse 1? The Messiah. So this is saying that when the Messiah comes, remember, this is, Isaiah was written 740 years before the birth of Christ. So God is saying by his spirit to the Jews and to everybody else, he's saying when the Messiah comes, he's going to have the fullness of the spirit on his life and working through his life. 
And these readers of Revelation would know that. So when they see this, these seven spirits of God and so forth, they're going to know that he's talking about his ministry and, and his characteristics, his titles, and, and so forth. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Now he says there, and from the seven spirits, who, notice the word who, who are before his throne. And this, he's going to get into more detail in chapter 4, but the spirit is before the throne. The fullness of the spirit is before the throne. So he wants us to know that. And then notice we're given some beautiful titles of Christ in the first part of verse 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And I want to start just with the first designation that sometimes people pass over, and that's Christ. We may think that that's a New Testament terminology, but it's not. It has its roots in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from which many of the New Testament writers base their writings, use that word uh, Christ there for anointed one or the Messiah. The Messiah is an Old Testament concept. It didn't start in the New Testament. It started in the Old Testament. So we need to understand that, that he is the Messiah. But also we're told he's the faithful witness. You may remember in John chapter 14, Philip asks a question, you know, how do we know the way and so forth after Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God the Father revealed himself in the Son, and the Son was that faithful witness. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. I focus on the word always. Don't you wish that represented your life? I wish it represented mine, but we all fall short. We don't always do those things that please him, but Jesus did. And no one else can say that. No one else in this world can say that they always do those things that please the Father. And that's why when it says there, the faithful witness, it's singular. You know, in English, the word the can't be plural, but in Greek it can. And in here it's singular. The singular faithful witness. Witness, he's the only one. There's only one true, faithful witness. As much as we can grow, as much as we can mature, as much as we have access to growing with his grace and by his power, no matter how mature we could possibly get, we will never cross the line into this realm of faithfulness. There is only one faithful witness of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Now, he also says, the firstborn from among the dead. And this can be tricky. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. There's another one in Revelation, the firstborn firstborn creation of God, or the firstborn, I forget the wording, but there's another place in Scripture. That's what happens when you don't have things in your notes. (laughs) You fumble like that. But he's the firstborn. Now, we can think firstborn. Okay, I understand that. The first offspring. But that's not the designation here. 
You may remember Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. There was a point in time because of what Manasseh did and didn't do that in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 9, God says that Ephraim is the firstborn. We're also told in Psalm 89 verse 27, we were told that God declared David, King David, uh, his firstborn. He says, also I will make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. So that we need to understand what firstborn means. It, it means preeminent one. It means uh, someone that's supreme. The Greek word is prototakos, which means to, for the ruler. So it's like, and we get our word prototype from that word. When you have a prototype, it's kind of the ruler in the sense of all the other things that come after it because it's the first one, yes, but also it's the one that's been designated by the inventor as such. So because of that, it has the preeminence. And so other times when we see he's the firstborn of all creation, he's saying he's the ruler of all creation. Colossians, that's the reference. Colossians, he's the ruler over all creation. And when you show a Jehovah's Witness that there's that firstborn doesn't necessarily mean the first one born in the Old Testament, it helps them understand that Jesus is the, the, the preeminent one over all creation. He wasn't the first one created as they teach. And then through him, being an angel, they, God created everything else. No, that's false. Jesus never had a beginning. He's not the firstborn. He's the preeminent one over all creation. But in this verse, it says he's the, he's the ruler from among the dead. He's the firstborn or the sovereign one or the preeminent one from among the dead his body his glorified body is a prototype it's the prototype for how our bodies are going to be he ate that just blesses me right there just blesses me right there he didn't have to make his body to where he could eat because we're told in first john we don't know what we will be but we know when we see him we'll be like he is we'll see him face to face our bodies are going to be like his body And if he ate, I'm telling you, we're going to eat. There's a marriage supper of the lamb that we're going to be at. While this world's going through, it's it's going to be going through during the seven-year tribulation. So that's a beautiful, beautiful encouragement for us. He also says there, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now go ask a king. We don't have kings. We sometimes have presidents that think they're kings. But we don't have kings in this country. We have rulers, though, and other countries have kings. And it's really talking about those that are in authority, that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And you can read about it in Matthew chapter 25, when there's the judgment of the nations, where he's separating the sheep from the goats and so forth. And he's judging the rulers of this world. And we're told in Scripture that the Lord holds the heart of the king in his hand. Now that is told in the Old Testament. These readers knew about that. So he's working off of something that they already knew about. He's the sovereign one. There are many times in the Old Testament we're told directly that God changed the heart of the king, one of the kings that were the enemies of Israel, that God was sovereign. And he tweaked that heart or he affected that heart to do certain things, sometimes against the children of Israel. Because they were in disobedience and, and rebellion to God. So God took that king's heart and he, he, he changed it. And he worked with his free will to accomplish his 
purposes. So here, Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, these kings and these people in authority in this world, are they going to recognize Jesus as, as their king? Some do, but most don't. But it doesn't matter if they acknowledge him or not. God is still sovereign. Again, the whole idea of pre- being preeminent, as I said, from firstborn is still carrying through here. He's sovereign. He's, he's the ruler o- over everything. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. So these are just three titles here. There's many titles. As I said, there's 30 titles designated for Jesus in the book of Revelation. I want to read them for you. This is this just in the book of Revelation. This is who Jesus is revealed as. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the end times. Not the revelation of the judgment of this world as much as those things are included. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the titles that he's given here. The faithful witness. Firstborn from the dead. Ruler over the kings of the earth. Okay, we just saw those. The Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. He who was and is and who is to come. The Almighty. The first and the last. The Son of Man. He who lives, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, he who has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, he who has the seven spirits of God, he who has the seven stars in his hand, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb, again, 28 times he says the Lamb. The Lord, holy and true. The Lord God Almighty, the King of saints, the Word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the bright and morning star. Wow. All the names of Christ. Each one of those names means something entirely different. And he's more than as many names as we could possibly give him or think about him with. He's beyond that. He's beyond anything that we could ever think of. He's he's infinite. Now notice he talks about what he does in the middle of verse 5. He starts with, to him who loved us. And that, even though in the English it's a little, looks like it's past tense, it's really a present tense verb there. He's continuously loving us. There's nothing that we can do to get him to love us more. There's nothing we can do to get him to love us less. And that revelation needs to continue to have its work in our lives for the rest of our Christian pilgrimage, the rest of our Christian walk. The more secure we are in his love, recognizing he is continuously loving us, the freer we'll be to be all that he's called us to be and to be who he's called us to be. Because that love anchors us. If you're insecure about his love, if you somehow think that changes based on your performance, so to speak, religiously or spiritually, then you're going to be always teeter-tottering and always insecure around him. One of the things with our children we have to be very careful with is that we communicate to them that our love is constant. No matter what they do or don't do, our love is the same. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And then he says, he's washed us from our sins in his own blood. And that word washed us is in a tense that communicates once and for all. He washed us once and for all. And it, we're used to the terminology, but really when you look at it as if you've never looked at it before, it's weird to think that something could be washed in blood to be clean. But that's what he's saying, isn't it? He's washed us from our sins in his own blood, and we are made whiter than snow. This is talking about our positional standing with God, which happened when we received Christ. He made us whiter than snow, and he washed 
from us our sins in his own blood. Now, there is a confession of our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That has nothing to do with our positional standing. That has to do with our relationship with him. If you have something against me, or I've done something against you, rather, and I ask for forgiveness, now that relationship is restored in the sense of our relationship. But my standing with you, in terms of my positional standing, if I'm your son or daughter, that never changed. But if, if I've sinned against you, I need to confess that, just like any other relationship. So he's washed us from our sins in his own blood again. That's the reason why we see so much worship in the New Testament. I mean, in the book of Revelation, it's because of what he has done for us, what he made possible for us. Verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's made us kings and priests. Some translations say a kingdom of priests. You could do it either way in the, related to the grammar there. And so God has called us to represent him in this world. You know, all the way back in Exodus chapter 9, uh, we're told, or 19 rather, we're told God's plan for the Israelites was to become a kingdom of priests. I want to read it to you. This is what God told Moses to communicate to the people. He said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God always intended for Israel to lead and reach the Gentiles. And they forgot about that. And because Jesus mainly ministered to Jews while in his public ministry, even the disciples misunderstood that. But Jesus had a plan for them to reach the Gentiles. So he's called us to be a kingdom of priests and, and, and to be kings and priests. That's important for us to understand. Again, he, John knew that these Jewish readers had that foundation. They already knew about Exodus chapter 19. They knew that. So he's reinforcing that. And so we're called to represent uh, God in this world. In fact, I can hear Pastor Chuck now. I've heard him say it so many times. A priest represents the people to God and God to the people. And so we, we, the, the, the New Testament doesn't have the office of priest related to leadership. But he has the whole body of Christ being priests and to represent God to the people and represent people to God. Not as a mediator, not to be mediators between God and man, but to represent them in sense of intercession and to help them get to know God. And so it's a beautiful thing. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we have to remember that. God's called us to be ambassadors for him. He's called us to be representatives for him, to represent to the world him. That's a big responsibility. That's a high calling. That's greatness. He's called us to greatness. He's called us priests. I mean, this is the highest expression of service in the Old Testament. I'm convinced that David wanted to be a priest so badly, but he couldn't. It wasn't his calling. He was a prophet. He was a king, but he was not a priest. But he's called us to be worshipers, to be priests, to represent. The whole thing about uh, Revelation is, is about worship and representing, uh, I mean, representing our hearts to the Lord in, in that worship. And that's why he breaks out in worship. Look at the rest of the verse. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen means that's the truth. So be it. So here we have John breaking out into worship, just thinking about the fact that he's called us to be kings and 
priests. Now we're going to get into his coming next week, so we're not going to really deal in depth with these last couple verses here, but I want to focus on the word pierced in verse 7. He says, behold, which means consider carefully, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So his second coming is going to happen. It's not going to be like the rapture where we are snatched away to meet the Lord in the air. He physically comes back to this earth, puts his feet, foot on the, on the um, Mount of Olives there. And, and there's, a, there's a victory there. And then, he, then, the, then the millennium starts after that. So he says, I'm coming, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. It cracks me up when people try to say, well, because we have television now and the internet, no matter what time of day he comes back physically, everyone will be able to see him. As if God's limited to that. As if God's, oh, I'm so glad you invented television and the internet, or else would I, you know, fulfill scripture. Obviously, God can show everybody, no matter what time of day it is, that he's coming back. So he's not dependent upon technology there. But he says all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They'll know what they've done. They know. Jesus won't have a name badge on him. How else do they recognize him? Because they know. They say they don't know, but they know. And when they see him, they will mourn. They will know at that moment they're on the wrong side of truth. And they will mourn. And we'll get into more of that later. I want to still focus again, like I said, on pierced. Psalm 22, we're, we're told that David prophesied. This is a thousand years before the birth of Christ. He said, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They, hadn't, they had not invented crucifixion yet. This is God going forth in the, in the corridor of time and telling all of that or revealing that to David, and whether David knew it or not. So they pierced his hands and his feet. But then we're told that there was scourging that happened in Isaiah 53. I want to read Isaiah 53 for you, part of it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, that means pierced, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So we're talking the scourging. Now the scourging, they would do that usually as many times that they needed to until that person confessed their sin. But the max they were allowed to go is 40 times. And they would often go 39 just to be safe in case they miscounted. But usually way before that, someone would confess their sin, even if they weren't guilty. But we know that Jesus was silent as a lamb is silent going before the person that's going to take its life. But Jesus was silent and he would, if, if he were to confess anything, he'd be confessing our sins. But he didn't. And he stayed there, and he took all of that. And there were bone and pottery and all these things. They would intermingle with those strips of leather, and he would shred the back. He was pierced even in that way, too. You think of the crown of thorns. Think of all the ways he was mistreated. Listen to Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Listen to this. I gave my back 
to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You think you were reading the New Testament. Again, written 740 years before the the birth of Christ. There was piercing going on there when he offered his back. No one took his back. He offered his back. Just like he offered his life, he offered his back. And he offered his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. It was something volitional. It was something that he offered. Nothing was taken from him from God's perspective. From man's perspective, he was murdered. The Bible says that. From God's perspective, though, he offered it up. No one took his life. He laid it down. And if he laid it down, he can take it up again. Now listen to Isaiah chapter 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God is encouraging Israel that he loves them. That he's never going to forsake them, just like a a parent would never forsake their child. A a normal parent, a regular, you know, healthy parent would not forsake their child. And he says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And I couldn't help think about Jesus' his hands and his wrists or wherever those spikes went through. People debate, you know, was it his hand or his wrist? I don't know, but I know that they're right there. And you think about his love for us and how he's inscribed... um, us on the palm of his hands, and think about the Lord Jesus having those marks still there. He showed Thomas, look, reach in. Because there was also piercing with the sword that went in his side. There was also piercing with the crowns. There was, there was all kinds of piercing going on. It just makes you want to worship. It makes you want to see him as the lamb. No wonder in Revelation he's mentioned as the lamb 28 times over and over and over again because of what he did. He wants to reveal himself to his church so that we can live a life worthy of that sacrifice as best as we can by his grace and by his power and to and to see that we're going to be worshiping him in the future, that that worship is never going to stop. It's the only thing that we could possibly do. It's the only logical, rational, fitting thing that we can do in response to what he's done for us. And I'm so excited about looking at different passages in the book of Revelation and going, we're there. We're right there. We're right there worshiping right now. It's beautiful. I can't wait to see it. There are times when you share with a Jehovah's Witness who think that they're going to live in paradise on earth. And they they point to these times where people are worshiping in the book of Revelation. And you say, yeah, where is that? Oh, it's before the throne. Yeah, it's a throne on earth. (laughs) No, it's in heaven. So we're worshiping the lamb in heaven. It's beautiful. So I can't wait to see all that he has for us. But just remember what what he's called us to be. Kings and priests. We're going to rule and reign with him. At the second coming, we're going to come back with him. We're going to see that in Revelation. We're going to see us coming behind him. And that's also told in the Old Testament as well. That we're coming with him. It's going to be a beautiful thing. So for all eternity, we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And we think that that only starts then. It starts now. Ruling and reigning now means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then being the leader in a situation in the sense of being the one that's influencing a situation because when we go into a situation we're salt and light we're more than conquerors we're all the things that God says we are regardless of what we think or what we feel 
So when we go into a situation and he's wanting us by the Spirit to influence that situation for him. That can happen through a smile. That can happen through just one word. It can happen through praying for someone. It can happen through using a spiritual gift. It can happen through preaching the gospel. It can happen through service, through unconditional love. We have all the resources available through him. He said he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that when we go into a situation, we're the influencer. When we think about Jesus being around sinners, he could do that because he was the one influencing. He wasn't being influenced. So he wants us to be strong and mature and dependent upon his grace and his power. So when we go into a situation, we have to understand we're bringing the kingdom of God with us. We are bringing the kingdom of God with us where we go. We have the answer to eternal life. We have the power by his spirit to, have, to, to be in self-control in the moment. We have words of eternal life. We have the keys to the kingdom. We have everything that we need. We can ask for his power in that moment, and he gives us his power to, to, to live that supernatural life in the moment. Because he's called us to live a supernatural life in affecting people's lives. So when we go into a situation, we recognize we're kings, we're priests, we're representing them to God, we're representing God to them, and so forth. That helps us to be dependent upon his power. Because the supernatural, he wants the supernatural marking our lives. When we go into a situation, bringing the kingdom of God, bringing all of God's resources there, then the supernatural happens. You ever been in a situation where you're there, you're not meaning to be an influence for God. You don't want to be an influence for God. Let's just be honest. Sometimes that's us. We're in a situation. We're at Rayleigh's. You know, we're in the produce department. I don't know. How do you tell if a watermelon's perfect? I'm thumping because I've seen other people thump. What am I listening for? Am I listening for echoes? Am I listening for the ocean? What am I? I don't know. But you're there and you're there in that supermarket in that, and then all of a sudden you see that God set you up. There's someone there in tears. There's someone there that looks discouraged. He prompts you by the Spirit. Encourage that person. Ask if you could pray for him. Or I want, to get, I want you to tell him that you care. Or whatever it is. You're bringing the kingdom of God with you. You're ruling and reigning now. You're being a kingdom of priests now. He doesn't say we will be there. Where does it say that? Kingdom of priests. Let's back up. He has made us, past tense. Notice in verse 6. Past tense, he's made us kings and priests. We're not waiting to become kings and priests. We are kings and priests now. So we need to to do that and take it seriously. May we understand, perceive, and properly appropriate the, the reality that we are kings and priests in this world for his power, I mean with his power, for his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for your revelation, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us so much We want to be influencers for you. We don't want to be influenced by the world. Help us, Lord, to draw close to you so that we can be used by you. I pray that every one of us here, help us, Lord, to be more willing to be used by you, to be more available at any given time, to not just be thinking about ourselves, Lord, but to be thinking about you and your kingdom. We ask now that you would prompt us by your Spirit. Help us to see your opportunities that you place before us to to live the supernatural influencing life to which you've called each one of us for your glory. May we be interruptible (laughs) for you to interrupt our lives so that we can be used by you. 
Satisfy our hunger for you, Lord. But help us to be filled up, not just so we can be blessed, but so that we can overflow with your revelation to others, to be salt and light, to preach the gospel, to fulfill the great commission to which you've called every one of us to obey. And we thank you for the privilege of letting us live a different kind of life. Thank you that holiness is its own reward, Lord. And I pray that we would grow in holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.